Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Always a pleasure to have you with us. A great topic today that Dr. Dale will be discussing, prescribed fire, prescribed burning, one of the tools used to manage quail habitat. And to discuss that, Dr. Dale hits the road today to visit with one of the state's leading fire experts, Brian Treadwell. Dr. Dale, let's go to you now. Well, thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you all again this month. Uh, and we've got a, a great topic, one that uh, is very timely. It's about uh, the ins and outs of prescribed fire, prescribed burning. And uh, there's a previous podcast about a year ago about specifics about fire and quail. So I uh, encourage you to go back and listen to that because certainly fire is one of the tools used, especially as you move further east, to uh, manage quail habitat. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the role of fire, but really we're going to be talking more about the application of fire today and some of the politics involved with fire. Uh, I got my start with prescribed burning back in 1983 when I moved up to Oklahoma State University, fresh PhD, going to set the world afire literally, and um, very soon found myself in the role of a extension range management specialist and my program du jour was prescribed burning. They really hadn't had a burning expertise up there in a long time. And coming from Texas Tech and Dr. Henry Wright, who was the uh, the guru of prescribed burning, uh, very uh, fortunate to have had a chance to work with him and under him a little bit. So I took that newfound tool and I made a career out of it up at Oklahoma State for several years. And I learned a couple of things. Uh, and one of them is still true today here nearly 40 years later. Uh, a paradigm shift that uh, is hard to see occur, and that is it's hard to take the plow out of the farmer's hand, and it's hard to put the drip torch in the rancher's hand. And we'll talk more about how some of those politics have evolved here in just a second. The other thing that I learned is from one of the ranchers up there in Osage County. Osage is the biggest county in Oklahoma and still has a fire culture. A rancher named Lee Holcomb once said that you think of everything that can possibly go wrong and then you plan for it. And I think that's a pretty good uh, uh, prescribed burn 101 kind of a tool or rule. Today I have uh, Mr. Brian Treadwell. Brian is from Cristobal, Texas, which is about 30 miles south of San Angelo. And if you think about Cristobal, Texas, or any of the country south of San Angelo past the interstate, it's not quail country. Uh, and really, I mean, we it's, it's, it's not on our map as far as quail country by and large. But I read a column in the in the San Angelo Standard Times about 20 years ago. It was one of these 100 years ago kind of thing. And it was bragging about how good the quail hunting was in that Sutton County, Slacker County area. So something certainly changed. Uh, grazing practice has been a big part of that. Uh, but the cessation of fire has also played a big part in that. And uh, that's where our uh, speaker today, Brian, calls home is, um, is down at uh, Christoval. And I first met Brian, I think it was about 2005. And I think at that time he was kind of involved in some real estate. He was trying to sell a ranch or had a ranch over in uh, northeastern uh, Menard County. Again, an area you don't typically think of as quail hunting. 
but uh, little Annie, my uh, prototype better, and I over 75 minutes pointed 13 coveys in an 80 acre field of broomweed down there, which is about as productive as 75 minutes of quail hunting as I've ever had. So uh, uh, that's when I first met Brian. Uh, he's been involved with ranching and several other um, entrepreneurial kinds of things. And so uh, Brian, I'm, I'm gonna ask you first of all, to give us your elevator speech. Tell, tell us a little bit about, uh, if I've missed something during your introduction, Tell us about your ranching operation and especially about, I know you've received several awards recently in, in recognition of some of the things you're doing down there. Yeah, so thanks for having me on, Dale. That uh, that ranch in Eastern Menard County, that's where uh, my dad and I, we won uh, a statewide Lone Star Land Steward Award there and an Aldo Leopold Conservation Award. And I think one of the things that they were so impressed with is our, uh, our tenacity to put fire on the ground and not just one and done but repeat fire for us seemed to be the the real key and and recently uh we switched back to where we're helping to partly run the the family ranch at fort mccavitt and uh we, we won a, a national srm excellence and stewardship and also the texas southwest cattle raisers uh, uh stewardship environmental management you know quite an honor but it, different awards different ranches but it was all about the same tool and our return use of fire and i find it especially intriguing when i begin to dig up a little bit of your background and so forth as far as introductory purposes today i mean most of the time when you're talking about prescribed burning you're dealing with somebody from texas tech university maybe an old aggie or increasingly somebody from oklahoma state university my good friend dave engel and the, and the good program they've got going up there at oklahoma state but you didn't come from any of those backgrounds. Uh, no. Uh, t tell me about where you came uh, from relative to prescribed burning. Well, I, my, my parents said I needed to have a backup plan to all of my uh, outfitting and, and ranching plans. And so I've got a degree in advertising from SMU. And, and the thing that's really cool about that is it shows that this fire, use of fire is not rocket science. It's not, it's not an exclusive club. And, uh, back when we were allowed to travel, I, I was invited to the World Prescribed Fire Council to speak at, and I was the only person there that wasn't a PhD. And, and I probably have burned more acres than anybody in the room, but it's, it's just a, the, the right tool for our country, and, and we see how it fits. Well, I, I appreciate that background and again the fact that it, it you know burning is not rocket science and, and you don't need a PhD to do it obviously you're gonna learn a few things hopefully that are gonna be helpful to you but your business now I know you've got a, a business called conservation fire team exactly what is the conservation fire team and, and, and how are you involved with that well uh, I started conservation fire team in 2006 when the state of Texas came out with the commercial burn manager license and uh, you know I, I put together a, a group of guys and again I guess this proves it's not it's not rocket science but you know men from around the the, the region that uh, are involved in the outdoors somehow and I pay them enough that they answer my call uh, when we have jobs but you know we may only work 75 or 100 days a year in the field but conservation fire team is a professional service for adding fire to a private landscape so it, it's a it's a custom harvesting I mean, if you were driving a combine you'd be a custom harvester you're a contract burner 
Yes. Uh, tell, tell me how that works. So uh, I, I, my team will travel the state. We also do New Mexico and Oklahoma. And uh, uh, I go around and set up uh, for a fire. Uh, I meet with the landowner. Um, I have an evaluation fee that uh, for the for the first visit and we get all the information for a burn plan and just like you said we talk about the things that could go wrong and if something went wrong I think they would end up in court so what I kind of try to do and I've never been there but I paint that picture of questions that we don't want to have to answer in front of a black robe you know you had a water sprayer but why didn't you fill it with water or why were you burning off of this deer trail instead of the road or things that that help a landowner step away from any bad decision I might ever make. I know when we're planning a prescribed fire, I tell my crew the last question that I ask myself is, can I defend what I'm about to do in court? I, I say that, up there? I say it all the time. If we're going to do something to ourselves, we got to do it to ourselves. That's I mean, right. if something's going to happen. Well, again, we, we talked about your unconventional um, training as, as it relates to prescribed burning. And I wish I'd had somebody working with me on advertising at the time. <laughs> I, I came up with several slogans that I wanted to bounce off of, and they never were very popular. I, I often referred to fire as the original Agent Orange, which it really is, but not politically, maybe not good. We, we say black lines matter. <laughs> and pyro manager, not pyromaniac. That's what right, I still right, say is a good one. Right, right. And uh, real quickly, I was in a group in a training session one time uh, there at OSU, and they had the university attorneys in there, and they're bragging to all the specialists and so forth that, uh, don't you guys worry, we got you back. Uh, one of them said, and I quote, we've never lost a case. <laughs> and I raised my hand. I said, sir, you've never tried a case like mine's going to be. He said, because I go across the ranch spreading fire. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he backed up pretty quickly. So they want you to be risk takers to a point. Yes. Kind of a thing. Um, what sparked your interest in burning, and do you have some mentors that you look at and say, you know, that guy really lit a shuck under me? I, I'd have to say that Bill Armstrong back at the Kerr Wildlife Management Area, and still today, one of those public tours of the Kerr is a huge eye-opener there at uh, Kerr County, and it's a Parks and Wildlife location. Bill Armstrong had ran that place since the 70s, and he, he put fire on it to begin with. And you know, you're driving down the highway to it and it's a monoculture of agarita, prickly pear, live oak, I mean, for miles. And then you hit their fence line and it's every species that grows in the hill country is present there and that's been nurtured and grown and they got grass that's hip high because of fire. And they graze it with a high intensity, low frequency system. So it, it was, uh, for us at our ranch, it was the only tool we could afford to use and the manpower needed was just right for what we could do with three or four of us. And so we started to endeavor a large scale burning operation. And one of the biggest eye openers for us is we had a, a just a north of where the broomweed, where we hunted those quail, there was a 600 acre pasture that was all prickly pear and mesquite, no grass, just grass growing in the pear. And I burned it for 23 days the first time, season I burned it to get through you know, maybe 60% of it to make it black around the prickly pear. And it grew grass back from that. By year six, we burned it in 45 minutes. Hmm. Well, again, and, and we'll, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk more about uh, the utility of, as you said, repeat fires as opposed to one and done kind of thing. Um, and, and 
my I tip my cap to Bill Armstrong as well. Knew Bill quite well, uh, and Bill was an old quail guy. Spent a lot of his career up to Matador WMA, and then carried that with him down to the Kerr WMA. And I always tip my cap to him and his uh, partner Donnie Harmel because they given the same speech probably five thousand <laughs> times down there at the Kerr Wildlife Area, but they always maintained enthusiasm. And uh, you'd think you were the first one to have heard that. So again. Uh, and a great demonstration area, and a great demonstration area for quail. I mean, again, you don't think of Kerr County as being quail country, but when you would see some of those pastures that they were managing for black-capped vireos and endangered songbird, I'd poke Bill with my elbow and say, Bill, that's not vireo habitat, that's bobwhite quail habitat. Sell it on that notion yeah. and get the black-capped vireos, and you'd be, I always thought, ahead of the game. Again, our, our focus today is not gonna be on fire ecology per se, and there's a whole lot more to it than just throwing a match. Uh, but the season of burn, the fire return interval, a, a lot of different things, how the various plant communities respond. But we're going to be uh, focused maybe on what prompted the interest in prescribed burning. And you mentioned cost a while ago. We might delve into that a little bit more. But there's two plant species that, I, in my opinion, in my experience, really stimulate the interest in fire, and that being the junipers cedars and uh, prickly pear. So was that part of, of, of your interest in getting started or, or again, what kind of, what made you say, this ain't working guys, we gotta try this? Well, it just driving down the highway, you can see that this ain't working uh, because there's nobody out there that's ranching to grow cedar and prickly pear. But I've never burned a ranch where a guy said, I knew I had that much prickly pear. They always say I never knew I once once it once the grass is burned off and the pear popped is sitting there. Um, but to to me, uh, uh, it was we were trying to grow grass and the combination of the ash on the bare ground and then subsequent hoof traffic is what created the grass to fill in. And then we created succession of grasses by burning. And then so it just made us think the harder we could wreck it, the better it would come back. And, and that, that kind of fit a lot of philosophy for us. Uh, but that's how we started with fire. And then it evolved. We sold that ranch in eastern Menard County and got over here to Cristobal and uh, just ended up having more time. And I filled that space uh, with, with the conservation fire team. And, you know, I've been a real estate broker on ranches only since the late 90s, but I've been on more ranch, been invited on more ranches and better ranches to burn them down than I ever got to talk to about selling them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, a, a unique and a, and a cool perspective. I, I've been involved with conservation and, and prescribed burning since about 1977. So during that time, I've had the opportunity to watch that pendulum of public opinion kind of swing back and forth. Uh, when I was a student at Texas Tech back in the early 1980s, uh, and again, had the opportunity to work with Dr. Henry Wright and so forth, he was moving the needle, moving the needle to the right. And uh, the popularity of prescribed burning and the scientific uh, background for prescribed burning in a state like Texas uh, became more and more popular. He was uh, celebrated as a, as a father of fire kind of thing. And and again, the 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 uptick and the use of prescribed fire was on a pretty good traction. And you had places like Shackelford County, uh, one of his old grad students, Alan Herman, 
I was the NRCS guy over there in, in between Alan Herman and the county agent, Rocky Vinson. Shackelford County was a showcase of the use of prescribed burning. I want, I want you to help me remember that because I know that's changed a little it bit. It the other way. Yeah, yeah. We, we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. And then you had Dr. Butch Taylor and others down at Sonora and the, uh, the prescribed burn associations, the PBAs, and, and those became fairly popular. I, I really don't, I can't comment on the status of those today. Maybe you can help me as far as are they still functional or, or where they're at. And then we moved into the, uh, from about 40-year period from 80 to 2000, about 20-year period. I'd call that the heyday of prescribed burning in Texas. You had the NRCS folks were trained and willing to help you do some burning. Uh, you had Parks and Wildlife. You had various players. And they were all becoming more and more familiar, accustomed to the use, safe use of prescribed burning. And then we, uh, the pendulum took a hard jerk back to the left, I figure, in the mid-2000s, uh, 2006, when we had the big wildfires up north Interstate 40, burned about a million acres, and then really took a kick in the crotch about uh, 2011 when we had as many as 14 different big wildfires burning across west texas and i mean we're coming off of a fire season in the west right now that uh, no doubt will have some political repercussions as far as what the use of prescribed burning is or ain't going to be um, across the uh, all the western states and so forth but and i travel again all of west texas and i'll never forget i was going over to Coriel County one time, and I, when I crossed the Erath County line, there was a little folding sign there that said, uh, burn ban in effect. And when I saw that folding sign, and this was one like might say, ice on bridge, beware kind of thing. When I saw that sign, I just winced. I stopped and took a picture of it, and I winced because I thought, this is not going to be good for the politics of prescribed burning. And, and sure enough, it hasn't been since that time. Again, that pendulum has, has swung back to the left, and I'm, I'm going to be asking you some, some things about that. But in your opinion, Brian, what are some of those factors that limit participation among our ranchers and our conservation community? I think that, that for the agency people, there's a fear of losing their job, and, and it's all tied to liability. Uh, and, and landowners are concerned about liability. Uh, you know, I think, I think that's probably everybody's biggest concern is is who's liable and you know when the state of texas started the commercial burn manager license the idea was that the commercial burn manager is liable i, I am your buffer for liability when you hire me to come on to your property to do a prescribed fire the, the state recognizes the benefit and the value of it um but that that's the biggest thing and i i do see that the pendulum has swung um you know, because obviously I had I had four counties that were uh, so concerned about fire risk that the judges asked me not to come work in their county. And you know, I've I've told my preacher before that he and I are a lot alike because I'll start my morning off bright and early, and I'll gather a group of men around me and we'll say a prayer. Uh, but. Before that, I also have to contact the sheriff and let him know I'm going to be in his county working, and I have to let the judge know I'm going to be in his county working, and so that's where the differences are. But uh, uh, I know that Shackelford, they, they were 
they were concerned and and they shut down uh, the potential of having a fire and and the private landowner you know he had a big expense to put in his fire breaks uh, he deferred to pasture and he pays property taxes that help function that county but the county had the ability to manipulate his decisions I guess or because of fear or, or liability pressure uh, and I always say I've never lit a fire that got that big you know I mean we stop it in the county at least you would think I'm going to ask you in a few minutes about your safety record and and, and again some of the some of those aspects of uh, actually putting the fire on the ground. I often talk about the, what I call the seven P's. In this case, we're talking about prescribed burning, but uh, uh, same thing could be said about doing a quail hunt or whatever. The seven P's, proper prior planning prevents pee-poor products. And sometimes, and again, going back to that rancher telling me you think of everything that could possibly go wrong and then you plan for it. Now, there is a prescribed burn plan uh, that the uh, Texas Department of Agriculture put out. And to me, it's a very useful little implement because, again, it makes you think. It walks you through. Have you done, are your fire lines adequate in this situation? What kind of weather are you anticipating? Have you contacted the various authorities? Those kind of things. So it's a useful plan, in my opinion. But you, when I asked you the other day what, what factors may limit participation, you pointed out communication. And absolutely. So tell us about what you were thinking about when you said communication and communication between or among whom. Well, first off, I mean, there's nothing private about a prescribed fire. Uh, you may, may no, nobody may know your intentions until you strike the match, but then the whole community is going to be aware of your smoke column. I mean, that was the original form of communication. So I always make sure I handle all of the legal notifications, but I request that the landowner make his neighbor's notifications, especially that one neighbor they doesn't want to notify that he's still angry with that, that that's the guy that needs to get the first call. But you know, these fires, it really should be a community event, a neighborhood scale event. And, and it may even make the, the cost of burning cheaper by adding more community to it and, and even community acres where, where we can burn through fences or, or use uh, the geography of, of fire to control the fire. And again, uh, on the communication front, um, having worked in extension all my life, uh, I was dealing with a Angel State out here on part of their property. wasn't the fireballs that day, and it was a it was a little windy to be doing the fire. To be perfectly honest, but I was helping out, and right at the end of the day, a fire jumps a little odd geometry, a little appendix, which can happen, and gets over into the state park. And all of a sudden, you know, here's 20 volunteer fire departments rushing out there to put out a five-acre fire, and the news people showed up, and the guy that was in charge of the fire that day, he declined to uh, comment to them. <laughs> And so uh, they asked me if I'd say anything. I said, give me a minute. I was mopping up a little area, and then I went over and talked to the young lady. I said, but you've got to promise me you'll come back out here in three weeks, and let's do a follow-up. Yeah. Because, again, so oftentimes we just think of, of the fire itself and how many times have you read that fire destroyed two million acres or whatever. Fire doesn't destroy those acres. Again, part of the natural process. But sometimes we don't come back to see what the regrowth is and the regeneration and so forth. So I, I always harp on that being part of your communication plan too. And like I said, you never burn in private. Uh, 
uh, I often tell my friends who put on herbicides that uh, if those spray planes were as visible yeah. as those smoke columns were, they'd probably have a lot more regulation. Yeah, I um, ride a county judge no matter what, no matter burn ban or not. I ride him as many days ahead of time as we can nail the forecast down. And then I call the sheriff's department dispatch that morning um, if they handle all the dispatch. If the fire department needs to be contacted separately, I do that. I, I, I let the Texas Forest Service know and uh, that covers all of my mandatory notifications. And, and so we don't ever wanna go out with doing that, but the most important thing for burning back on your own home 40 is that call to dispatch right before you light the fire. If you're on the board, then a lot of your headaches have been taken away. You know, we want L fires to be safe, but um, you, we need to plan for, for what can go wrong. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. And when you talk to that dispatcher at the sheriff's office, uh, be sure, if you're calling at 11 o'clock in the morning, be sure and say, please pass this on to the shift change at 3 o'clock because sometimes that communication breaks down. So make sure, again, good, communi good communication throughout. Brian, who are some of the, the various agencies you mentioned, one or two of them, the Forest Service? Who are some of the authorities that, that you got to work with or you should strive to work with, I guess I should say? Definitely the Texas Forest Service, because I guess if in the worst case situation, they're going to be the ones that you'll be working with when the fire's not on your property anymore. Um, the Texas Department of Agriculture is really the source for all information about legal outdoor burning um it's who i'm who the license is through and those requirements continuing training um, the tcq they control air quality um, but their notice is optional uh, per their rules um, I, i've done it for a long time but the the uh, notify the tcq but they they're they're um, uh, investigative end of their office is is over pulling the regulations i guess like they're they're out pulling the wagon and there's some areas that we, we you just can't go burn you can't go burn in the austin travis hayes region anymore because if they get a single phone call or a picture showing smoke on a fence line you get a ticket and you don't get to uh, have a counter picture that says that three seconds later it all worked itself out uh, they feel like they are in office for the complainer. So uh, I, I think that there's a lot of places we could work I, I, that we'd have less problems. And we may have to develop an I-35 charge because anywhere you get closer to I-35, there's just that many more lawyers. Mm -hmm. What about at the county level, who you get, who you dealing with there? The county judge, uh, and a lot of them have got used to it. I used to get replies from them saying, but we're not in a burn ban. But I think that they understand that wasn't that I missed the fact that they weren't in a burn ban, but I just wanted them to know because inevitably somebody's gonna say, did you see smoke west of town or whatever? And I think that's the guy that needs to know. Um, As you deal with these people and at least those state agencies, again, having awareness of fire and probably having awareness of the positive role of prescribed burning. But do you find these people, I'm put you on the spot a little bit, do you find these agencies to be allies, to be nemesis, or bureaucrats? Uh, I think that the Department of Agriculture is a safe place for the fire to be, fire rules. 
the TCEQ is a real uh, adversary, and and they actually they develop. I mean, I, I'd have to say it's personal. I got the Dallas Fort Worth office. The I, I get nowhere when I call there. I even did the bonfire during a burn ban for Tarleton State, and I tried to get a waiver to burn at night, which they've historically done their bonfire at night, and I could not. They, they denied me, and I tried to get it under ceremonial purposes, and they I couldn't do that because I was licensed. And so what it turned out to be is I did it at 9 o'clock at night like normal, but the TCEQ closes at 5. Hmm. So there's it didn't happen. It's the tree that fell in the woods, I guess. Hmm. You've mentioned that you are a certified prescribed burn manager. Define for our audience what that title means and how do you go about achieving that? So uh, there's a, a, a rigorous amount of classroom uh, information that needs to be uh, synthesized and be proficient and being able to pass. There's a test, of course. And then the rest of it is experience and uh, which you have a certain number of burns you have to been participating on and then an even greater number of burns that you were the the burn boss and then you can apply for the license and try and pay for your insurance and and there's a lot of conflict on the fire line on wildfire so the department of agriculture gives training credits for certified commercial burn managers who respond to texas forest service led wildfire complexes because the value is seen in having more experienced ignition teams available to help stop these fires. Um, the uh, uh, insurance is a big hurdle and something we're, we're trying to work on. It just seems just bureaucracy. The Department of Agriculture had a plan and they went one direction with it and Texas insurance companies went another way. So it's, it, insurance is probably the biggest hurdle right now um, and then the Forest Service you know like I said we work with them uh, but uh, they may not have the uh, luxury to handle wildfires in the same manner that my team might be able to go in and shut one down on and again your team is especially working to make sure there's not a wildfire that it's kept between the lines Kind of thing. That's where all our practice is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up our pace here just a little bit. Uh, where do you do most of your burning at, Brian? I'd say a good majority is on the Edwards Plateau, um, but we burn from the border with Mexico and at South Texas, um, all the way over to Falfurious, and we go into Harris County. We burn for the uh, a, a Prairie Conservancy over there a number of times. Uh, right up to the edge of Fort Worth. Um, we burned uh, one for uh, Sid Richardson Foundation at Lake um, uh, Benbrook, I believe, in the city of Benbrook. And the Fort Worth city limit line was right on our curb. And like you said, we had two news helicopters. We had everybody in Tarrant County come out. I think it was a 2,500 acre burn. And we pushed it into the lake. So it was pretty, pretty phenomenal smoke column coming. Uh, and uh, one poor fire department came seven times. Wow. <laughs> uh, again, and stresses communication, and, but it also kind of, I guess it stresses 
stresses relationship with the volunteer fire departments and I'm gonna single them out because I'm just curious um, as you burn across the state in different counties different politics different condition do you find your volunteer fire departments eager uh, hey can we come out and help or uh, you light it we're gonna put it out kind of thing and uh, more of a uh, not a friendly mode. Kind of I think you're right. There's a few fire departments that have uh, worked with us when we put out small wildfires where Forest Service wasn't involved um, that are extremely receptive to us and have even cheered when they've seen us show up. But for the most part, the volunteer fire departments don't want any fire. And it's almost as if it's territorial, I guess. I, I'm not sure, but before 2011, you could pay to have those guys come and babysit fires with you and even maybe learn something about the way that we do things compared to trying to anchor, flank, and pinch a fire to put it out. But since they've been on so many wildfires, and no telling, I mean, the my local fire department, I bet they were out two, three times a week most of the summer and into the fall uh, trying to put out fires. So uh, there's some understanding that they, they don't want to be there now or they're, they've they're busy, but uh, there's also some that go just the, the other end of the spectrum, like you say, and they'll run to the county judge and pitch a fit, which is one of the things that the hurdle that we had in, in another county that the, the landowner contacted the volunteer fire department to make a, a, a donation to have them come and watch. And instead, they went to the judge and had it the judge called me to ask me not to come and do the fire and even though we can do the fire and it's by law uh the judge said that if i if i did something went wrong i would wish i'd never seen matches and i've got an affection for matches and i, I told the judge that really honestly he had me at please don't i mean that, that's all it takes we're not we're not there to fight i mean if 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 you don't see the benefit of what we're doing or how badly the land needs to be burned I can't be that that advocate without the the landowner involved. The when you when your team is out there, let's let's say we've got a thousand acre burn plan for this afternoon. Are the landowners encouraged to participate? Do they participate, or or do they take a trip and get out of town? <laughs> yeah, of some some do uh, leave the minute we start, and but for the most part, they they stick around, and 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 it truly is fascinating. I've even had. Uh, fire marshals say that they've, they've actually never taken the time to watch fire move because they've been in such a hurry to go attack it and to put it out. And so uh, we want more hands on deck. I feel like fire is all hands on deck pro pro uh, process. And, you know, if I had a fire and you have five crew that work for your ranch all the time, and it was just me and my guys, and your guys were off doing their normal thing, and I had a problem, I'm afraid that would reflect on you. But if you had your guys there just even staged out watching, you know, then it's still all my problem. You know, these are these decisions, plan for the worst, hope for the best. Um, uh, for those of you that listened to our podcast last month when I interviewed uh, Paul Melton, Paul was very complimentary of a uh, burn workshop that we held up at the ranch in 2009, and he, he thought that was one of our greatest outputs was the training that we provided because that was the only one, at least at that time, that had been held north of uh, Interstate 10. And 
the opportunity again to uh, come out and see fire either the day of the week after or six months later what I call a fire appreciation day and we've had a couple of those up at the research ranch and again it really opens eyes uh, for those that are on the fence those that are on the fence saying well I've heard about this burning and prescribed fire and so forth but I don't know if it's for me or not and they come out and again they see how much prickly pear there really was out yeah. there and they see those small cedars knee high and below that uh, have met their makers and all of a sudden uh, it begins to, I won't say a lot of fire, it's too corny, but it's it, it started some, some interest in that. And when I was talking about the landowners a while ago, I always reflect back to uh, something somebody told me when I was coaching Little League Baseball. If their son wasn't getting to pitch enough or play or whatever, uh, and they started criticizing me, I'd say, come on out here and help because nothing quiets criticism like involvement. So again, as you see your neighbor or you find out that your neighbor is, is planting a, a prescribed burn or Brian and his team are in the neighborhood and you all see smoke, uh, go over in a positive, objective uh, frame of mind and you can probably learn something. Brian, if I'm interested in learning more about uh, either, either your services or how I can begin to cultivate my own expertise, where should I go and, and who should I see? Uh, to pick a burn manager, Texas Department of Agriculture has a, a, a list of the commercial burn managers. I, I think there's 35 in Texas, but maybe 26 or 28 of them are all foresters in the I-45 loop where, where they protect trees. And I've been invited to come over there and burn before, and I always turn it down because my philosophy, I, I only know I like the fire that wrecks the trees. Uh, but... Uh, the Department of Agriculture, um, if you want to find out more about Conservation Fire Team, uh, I've got a website. That's uh, com, and then Conservation Fire Team on Facebook. And uh, and again, I, I see your Facebook posts and so forth occasionally, so I know y'all are busy pretty oh, yeah. much year-round, aren't you? Oh, it is. It, fire is really a year-round tool. It's just taken a lot longer for people to adopt it that way. And, you know, like you say, the sea and the fire or the effects of a fire light a spark or light a fire in people. It's, it's really, it's how you, it's like taking on religion at that point. And then you really can't get enough of it when you're fully converted. And so uh, if you see fire as a tool to unlock diversity, but you have your fires at the same time every year, you're really kind of limiting your potential. But if you spread those out kind of the way nature would, because it's really truly what we're doing is, <coughs> As a landowner, we're stepping in and and we are mimicking a, a, a cue from nature to start a fire because she's prepared for it. Or maybe we're finding out that these, like Oklahoma State does, these growing season fires, you know, burning it green is, is a really effective, safe fire. And so we add it at times where nature would allow it naturally but in conditions that we obviously can control. And again, uh, as you have the opportunity or the interest, uh, follow us there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch because we burn uh, typically every year. We try to help the uh, prescribed burn class at Texas Tech get some opportunities to burn. And if you ever see us having a, a fire workshop or whatever, well, I promise you, it won't be one of these where you listen to PowerPoints all day. Uh, you will have a drip torch in your hand and be burning because uh, that's just... Uh, 
that's sacrilegious to me to hold some kind of burn workshop and not get to burn. And we've got plenty of good opportunities uh, to burn and we burn frequently. So Brian, I appreciate you, you sharing your expertise with us today. Uh, again, I know you've had to walk a thin line at times uh, politically and so forth. Uh, and you're one of the ones that's on the, um, out there on the cusp because a lot of the other ones by the nature of their employers and agency they're having to play it safer or whatever are not raise hackles and those kind of <laughs> thing and challenge paradigms uh, maybe some situations that you put that into and again i congratulate you on being the only prescribed burner i know from southern methodist university uh, right right <laughs> my claim to fame is I'm, I'm the only guy that breaks into hard sweat from smu outside of a gym every day but no I, i've certainly enjoyed it and thank you for the time and, and, and fire really is it's a natural part of the system and and it's it's been the one tool missing from our landscape for 75 years or so and it's the way we we manage the grass but if we manage for fire we will burn it back to what those pioneers wrote about when they encountered this land the first time. And again, a natural part of our Southern Great Plains, every three to seven years, historically, we were gonna have a fire. Just basically trying to go back in there and mimic some of those quote unquote uh, natural processes and, and bring fire back to where it belongs as far as our toolbox of uh, various conservation implements. Gary, uh, that's uh, it for us. Uh, from out here in Cristobal, Texas, and going to send it back to you in the studios and look forward to visiting with you again next month. Well, thank you, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Brian, for those outstanding insights on this month's topic. To learn more about Brian Treadwell and his prescribed fire services, go to the page on Facebook of the Conservation Fire Team. To gain access to past episodes of the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, thanking you for spending time with us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.